0: the believers there in the capital of the empire in that day. We did the first part of chapter 11 last week. We'll be focused on verses 17 to 36 this morning in Romans 11 a few weeks ago, Katie and the boys and I were in Ohio visiting my parents, and my two brothers, their families were there as well. One day, we spent at Cedar Point, an amusement park that's there on the shores of Lake Erie. Dozens of rides, including some truly world-class roller coasters. And I don't know if you like roller coasters or not. Maybe you've not, you know, gotten philosophical about roller coasters you know they can be kind of paradoxical when you think about it marvels of engineering meticulously designed so that you feel completely out of control uh, gives you the simulation of danger while being perfectly safe uh, takes you to the edge of what can be physically tolerated what you can physically withstand as a human being and we do it for fun uh, some of us at least. I I hope you won't think it sacrilegious this morning if I compare the history of redemption to a roller coaster. But as we've seen, especially in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, God's plan has taken what seems to us like some completely unexpected twists, turns, ups, downs, as he focused on Israel, who then rejected their Messiah, then he's looking to the Gentiles, turns to the rest of the nations. And then, we, as we saw last week, another turn is coming. Frankly, you, you wonder where it's all going. It can feel like it, this whole thing is out of control. But, but God has engineered his plan perfectly for his purposes. And in Romans 11, we're going to learn a little bit more of what he's aiming for The result being not our amusement, but our amazement. The theme here this morning is this. God's surprising plan for our salvation humbles us and glorifies Him. So, as I said, we're focusing on verses 17 to 36, but I'm going to back up to verse 11. I will be referencing 11 to 16 as well. Uh, I'll start reading at verse 11. Romans 11. Verse 11, "...so I ask, did they, the Israelites, stumble in order that they might fall in terms of their sin? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, more specifically the rejection of Jesus, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous." Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, Gentile believers in the church, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches." And the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you, too, will be cut off. And even they, the Israelites, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, Gentiles, but have now received mercy because of their, Israel's disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This is God's word. So again, God's surprising plan for our salvation humbles us and glorifies him. We're going to take this text in four parts. Here's part one. This outline's on the back of the worship folder and on the screen. Part one, grafted in. You, as a believer, are now part of God's people only through faith. In the paragraph that is verses 17 to 24, Paul is talking to the Gentile believers Uh, describing them as olive shoots that have been grafted into an olive tree. And the olive tree being an image used by Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah and Hosea uh, as a symbol of the nation of Israel. If you have a Bible that has footnotes or cross-references, you could probably find those and look those up uh, in Jeremiah and Hosea. Now, if you say, well, hey, hey, Gentiles can't be a part of Israel. You have to be Jewish, a descendant of Abraham. Well, Paul is not ignoring the ethnic difference he is saying that through faith in Christ, gentiles are brought into the blessings that God promised to and through Abraham. Uh, if you go back to Genesis or excuse me, Romans 4, uh, verses 16 and 17, we looked at that many weeks ago. He says this, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise May rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written in Genesis, I have made you the father of many nations. But the real thrust of this paragraph in chapter 11 is not about the Gentiles being included in Abraham's family. He's already made that point again and again through faith. Here he's warning the Gentile believers. Now that you are part of God's people, you should not be, verse 18, arrogant toward the branches, that is, toward the unbelieving Jews, as if, as if God had turned from Israel to because he found somebody better, like hmm, me. Huh, wow. Now, now it's, it's quite possible that maybe you don't know any Jewish people, believer or unbeliever. Uh, but that doesn't mean you don't need to hear this because listen to the first two reasons that Paul gives for us not to be arrogant toward unbelievers, and more specifically, unbelieving Jews. Verse 17, he says, yeah, you're included in in what God, the work that God is doing to save a people for himself. You're included, but you had to be grafted in. Uh, it's not like you were just naturally a part of God's people. You were a wild olive shoot grafted into a cultivated olive tree. That's what I was uh, alluding to earlier when I'm saying he's not ignoring ethnic difference here, not ignoring the different histories, the different relationships to God. You were a wild olive shoot grafted into a cultivated olive tree. You did not naturally belong here. And verse 18, now that you are in, you don't support the root, it supports You. Now, I don't know uh, all of you here, maybe you might be very uh, proud of your particular ethnic heritage. Maybe you're Scottish, like I am, Scots, Irish, Serbian, Puerto Rican, we have those represented here. Uh, maybe you've done some, some really intensive genealogical research, you've traveled to your ancestral home. Uh, but in terms of your salvation through Christ, you've been adopted into, grafted into a heritage. A family tree that includes Abraham and Sarah and Moses and David and Esther and most importantly, Jesus through faith. You would not, but, but here, just beyond Jesus, think about those others in the family tree. You would not be where you are without them. Think, think about it. If you, as you depend on your daily strength, even on God's Word, yes, it's God's Word that we go to each morning but you're also depending on Solomon and Isaiah and Paul. Now, maybe you're proud of the fact that, uh, like the title of a popular history book from some years ago, that the Irish saved civilization. Yeah, we, we Irish, we got, we're getting things done. Oh, but, but God brought salvation to the world through the Jews. That's the story of the Bible. The greater way that civilization is saved, that people are saved, is through the Jews. So, don't be so arrogant, Gentile believers. Now, looking back again at verse 19 and 20, um, where he continues, after that, do not be arrogant because you're not the root. Then you will say, verse 19, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true uh, to a point. They were broken off because of their unbelief, more specifically. But you stand fast, through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. If we stand at all, we stand through faith. Good news. If it all hinges on faith, then anyone can be saved. You don't have to be a Jew to belong to Jesus. Anyone can be saved if it all hinges on faith. But warning, if it all hinges on faith, then no one should be arrogant about it. There should be no such thing as a arrogant Christian. It happens. I get that, but it shouldn't be because we're here through faith. The essence of faith is dependence, not independence. I did it on my own. I did it my way. The essence of faith is dependence. A believer is one who trusts in, relies on, depends on Christ. How can we be proud as if we saved ourselves? We did not. He is mighty to save. We are weak, but he is strong. Verse uh, Again, the end of the second part of verse 20. So do not become proud, but fear for or because if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided You continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now, that makes us uneasy, as I think it it should be unsettling. It should make us uh, pay attention. Is it saying, though, that we could lose salvation? Can someone be genuinely saved and lose that? Well, think about the comparison here with the natural branches that had been broken off. Those natural branches that were broken off were physically descended from Abraham. Ethnically Jewish, yes. They had every appearance then of being included in the promises, the covenants of God. They perhaps they were very observant uh, of the law. Perhaps they went made the visit to the temple three times a year. But they did not share. Genu- but if they did not share genuine faith, that would be reflected in those branches that were broken off. That same that same profile could be here in this room today. Some of you might, have, you might have every appearance of being included in God's family. You study the Bible, you sing the songs, you take communion, you put offering in the box. But if you don't share a personal, genuine faith in Christ, at the end of the day, you're not connected in any, like a branch to the tree, branch to the vine, you're not connected in any organic, life-giving way. Beware then the kind of arrogance that is not the kind that we think of, the, the showy, the haughty, look at me kind of arrogance. Beware the arrogance of presumption. It says, I'm here, aren't I? Of course, I'm fine. I'm fine with God. God's fine with me. Beware. Do not be proud, but fear. The, note the kindness of God. And the severity. God's kindness is the only way that any of us are here today with any hope for eternity. And he is severe toward those who presume upon his grace. Okay, but how do we continue? It says, if you continue in his kindness, how do we continue in his kindness? Well, it is precisely this, to persevere in that faith, to continue to depend on the grace of God to us in Christ. But if you walk away from that grace. Abandon that faith. Prove yourself to be an unbeliever. You will find yourself broken off. To continue his kindness then is not to, well, do enough to keep him happy. That's not it. That's not faith. Stay connected to Christ. Persevere in faith. You are now part of God's people only through faith that should glorify God and humble us. See his kindness. Take note of his severity. Humble us. Glorify him. We'll we'll see this more as we go on to the next part, part two. This mystery. You are not the end of God's saving work. Israel is. So the end of the, the tree branches section turns back to Israel, verse 23. And even they, Jewish people, who had been unbelievers, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, or excuse me, if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. We'll stop there for the moment. Now, a lot of attention gets paid, rightly so, to the mystery, those three phrases at the end of 25 and into 26. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. Let me try to explain briefly a few different ways this has been interpreted. Some think that this means... In the end, every single Israelite who ever lived will be saved. And while that partial hardening here is described as temporary, it's until the fullness of Gentiles has come in, the idea of every individual Jewish person throughout history will be saved doesn't seem consistent with the rest of the letter or even this section. When he talks about Israelites being grafted back in again, it's not automatic because they are Jewish or even elect They can be grafted back in if they do not continue in unbelief. And I don't think that can happen somehow retroactively, unconsciously. Uh, You know, you could debate that. Another way that people have read this, others focus on the phrase, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. And they say, well, you see, you take, remembering the beginning of chapter 11, well, you take the remnant of Jewish believers, and then you add Gentile believers, and boom, that's how, all Israel understood as some Israel or some Jews, some Gentiles. Boom! All Israel. Uh, but that would be a very sudden shift in Paul's use of the word Israel. Everywhere else here to the, refers to the Jewish people. Now he can say, as we saw earlier uh, in chapter nine, uh, not not all Israel is Israel. So he can use two ways to speak about that in that term. But he hasn't done that at all in this chapter. And I don't, I don't find that quite persuasive. Um, more than that, more than that, verse 12 describes a fullness of the Jews coming in after the fullness of the Gentiles. So back to verse 12. Now, if their trespass, the Jews' rejection of Jesus, means riches for the world, the gospel goes to the nations, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean, or their fullness? So there's the fullness of the gen, there's the remnant of the Jews, the fullness of the Gentiles, and then the fullness of the Jews again that's going to come later. I, I don't think that you say, well, there's some Jews, there's some Gentiles, boom, we're done, that's it. Now, there, there's, he's coming back to the Jews. Um, so while there are other details that, that, that impact this issue, I'm most convinced by this understanding of these words that there will be many Jews, perhaps even the entire generation, who come to faith around the time of Christ's return. And there's even other variations of that, but you can talk to me about that if you're you're interested. But I see this this way, an, an entire generation of Jewish people who come to faith in Christ, whether that is every single individual Jewish person, but, but a, a, the mass of going from the remnant to the fullness, that to me is significant. The remnant to the fullness at around the time of Christ's return, which is why he quotes Isaiah here in verses 26 and 27. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, again, his Jewish people, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The fulfillment, the final fulfillment of all the promises and blessings of the new covenant this is the fullness coming in of Israel after the fullness of the Gentiles, not just a few branches grafted in in Paul's ministry and the ministry of people even today, uh, but here's the thing. In Paul's day and ours, since we are still both before Christ's return, we're, we're still in that time of par- a partial hardening of Israel. Many Jews are now enemies of Jesus, opposed to him as Messiah, though some do believe there is a remnant. And there are still, apparently, still more Gentiles, more of the nations to be brought in. We have not re- reached the fullness of the Gentiles. But then God, in his plan, in a final flourish, a great harvest of Israelites, God is not finished with them yet. He will keep his promises in every way. Now, one more point, important point to make on this section. I know this has been a lot more technical than we typically get. But many want to know, okay, so if that verse... The last one I read, verse twenty-nine. If God's gifts and calling to Israel, ethnic Israel, is uh, there, the gifts and calling are irrevocable. Does that mean we should take a particular political view of the land of Israel or the nation state of Israel today? Um, I'll, I'll, as you know, hotly contested. What I all I want to say about that is this: this chapter is about God keeping His promise by Jewish people. Being saved through faith in Christ. That's the, the promise that he says. I, I'm gonna, that's how he's going to keep his promises. Their greatest need the, the, the people of Israel, Jewish people, ethnic Jewish people, the nation state of Israel, however you want to talk about that, national Israel, their greatest need right now is not the defeat of Hamas in the West Bank. Their greatest need is not stopping the rockets that are going back and forth. Their greatest need is that Jesus would be victorious sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, and, and that they would recognize him as their Lord and King. That's their greatest need. And the, here's the beauty. God says that one day that will happen. We will see that happen. Now, let me take you back one more time to verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I, don't want you, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. This is just another way we need to be humbled by God's plan. Just when you think you've got it figured out. Okay, um, Israel got kicked to the curb. Now the Gentiles are tops. God, God's got it whoop, got another surprise. We are not the finishing touch on God's masterpiece. That is left for Israel. And that's and if you think like, oh, well, how come they get like, you know what? You need to just take take a back seat, okay? It's it's okay. This is God what God's doing, and He's He's He wants what He's doing is not elevating any particular people or persons, so much as he is showing his mercy, which is where we're going in the next section. God, does, God is going to work finally, ultimately, in Israel in such a way that it ties up all the loose ends of his promises. It will happen, yes, because of election. They are his chosen people, but it will also happen through faith in the coming Messiah, Jesus. Don't miss that as well. God's surprising plan for our salvation, humbles us, glorifies him. That's what it's ultimately about. So verses, verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, Gentiles, but have now received mercy because of their Israelite disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Part three, mercy on all. You are just a sinner who has received God's mercy. I hope you don't, I'm not trying to insult you. I'm just saying, that's just what we are. That's just who you are. You and I, we're just sinners who have received God's mercy. That is both humbles us and glorifies God, and it brings us into a beautiful place. Now, to be clear, Paul did not say when he says at the end of verse uh, 32 that he may have mercy on all. He's not saying that God, he's, well, he's just, you know, in the end, he'll just save everybody. That's just, you know, he'll just say, oh, y'all yeah, come on in. Um, that's not what mercy on all means. Remember, this is Paul's concluding statement on how the gospel can truly be good news, even if so many Jews aren't in on it yet. I mean, weren't they the focus of God's plan and his promises? Okay, so, well, if the, if the Jews' rejection of Jesus was the way the gospel came to the Gentiles, the ungodly nations of the world, and then the gospel going to the Gentiles made the Jews jealous for God again, uh, wanting that relationship of grace, well, in the end, what that means is we all come to God on the same terms. We, uh, as many people before me have said, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's no, nobody has a, a better seat or a, an easier access. You know, going back to the time at, at Cedar Point, the amusement park. It's been, it's been a long time since I've been to one, but you know they've they've got these. You know you can pay you can you, you pay to get in, but you could pay more to skip the lines. Like ah, oh, come on, you know like just pay, somebody, somebody's throwing down some more cash, they're, they're jumping ahead of you and having more fun than you are. And it, like, there's, but there's nothing like that at the foot of the cross. There's no, well, you know, you could get our premium uh, rewards membership and then you could get to the front of the line. You could get more blessing, more whatever, more favor, more grace. No, it's, we all come and we can, there's nothing we can do to pay. We can't possibly pony up a little bit more or, or show ourselves worthy of a little more to get any kind of advantage, to have any kind of privilege. Jew and Gentile, yes, there, there are special ways that God has worked through Israelites. So there are special ways that he has worked through other peoples. But at the end of the day, we all stand in, in need of mercy, God's mercy. God is the one who, is, who is, gets elevated, not any of us. This is Paul's concluding statement in some sense, of this whole section before he gets to the praise at the end, so on how the gospel can be truly good news for Jew and Gentile. Everyone is a sinner in need of the Savior. Everyone needs the grace of God. Everyone depends on the mercy of God. That's the only way anyone is saved. This helps us with um, understanding that this was part of God's design. This is how he had engineered and planned, plotted his saving purpose. Um, we go back to Romans 9. I'll briefly read to you a few verses when you see, okay, this is all about him showing his mercy. Romans nine twenty two to 24 says, what if, and this, this is a what if question because we're wrestling, you remember, in chapter 9 about how God's God's sovereignty and all the things that he's orchestrating and doing, and how could he do all these things, especially the things that seem really messy and ugly and stuff? How can he do all these? What if God, Paul says, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order that, here's the purpose, in order to make known The riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This is God's purpose to show mercy to all kinds of people, Jew and Gentile, so that salvation is about what he has done for us, not about any status or privilege that you and I bring to the table. We're not going to be able to understand everything about election and foreknowledge and the interplay between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, how God can make even bad things work together for good, like he said in Romans 8.28. But I think we can understand this. This world in all its darkness and corruption and downright evil, the tragedy of something like children being swept away from parents in that flood in Kentucky, all this sordid history plays out in a way that shows all we can do the best we can do is survive in a broken world. All we can do to somehow escape ultimate justice, all we can hope for is the mercy of God. What else ultimately do we have? The question today, I need to ask you do you know yourself to be a recipient of God's mercy? I mean, first you have to see yourself as someone who needs mercy, as opposed to someone who's, again, the the proud or the arrogant, the one who's wise in their own sight. Yeah, I mean, I, I know the game. I know how to do it. I know how to make God happy. I know, I know how to you know, work it so that I'm, I'm uh, in with God. No, 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 no. Do you know yourself, hey, to be in need of mercy? And then if, if you come here thinking, well, yeah, I mean, I believe this stuff, right? Uh, do, you, do you live then in that grace? Do you know yourself to be? I, you're just a sinner who's received the mercy of God. That's who we are. Don't kid yourself that other people need mercy, but you've done plenty to earn God's favor. Lean into the mercy of God. I, I need I'm I'm a fool like everybody else. I am I'm I'm a sinner like everyone else. I need God's mercy. If you're someone who's tempted to rely on yourself, rather than on Christ, this is a perfect time to repent of your self-reliance, of your self-righteousness. If you're, if you're someone who, who's afraid to come clean before God, to confess your sins because all you can imagine is fiery judgment, his whole, you understand, his whole plan for the redemption of the world is to highlight his mercy. He is ready and eager to show mercy to you. And when you know that that all that you stand to gain out of his kindness to you, you see how surprising his plan of salvation is. It humbles us. It glorifies him. And, and it doesn't seem humiliating. It seems like relief. It seems like, okay, I don't, I don't have to pretend to be something I'm not. I don't have to, to, to fake it and then be afraid that somebody's going to find out that I'm really not the real deal. Everything that God is and has done for us in Christ is more than enough. More than enough for our shortcomings, our failures, our mistakes, our sins. This is good news for people who have blown it. Who have looked at their lives and said, like, I, can't, I can't fix this. I've done, I've done something. I, sure, now I see. I, I, I see the mistake now. I see it was wrong now. I wish I would have done, oh, if I could only go back and do it differently. Uh, except, would I have done it differently? Would I really have done it differently? Would, would I get it right this time? This is good news for people who have blown it, for people who have made mistakes not easily fixed or unfixable, those who feel like the, their, their bad reputation, what they're known for, what everybody sees when they look at me, this is, there's mercy for you here. God's mercy is the only way out. And that's how he planned it. It's the part of his character that you wouldn't have seen, part of his goodness that you would never have experienced unless you knew that you were lost without it. And that's why Paul ends the chapter this way. 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the last part this morning, although I'll tell you, we will come back to this part next week too. To him be glory. Your salvation really is all about Now, the Bible has a number of places where it describes the unfathomable wisdom and knowledge of God, like the end of Job, which is quoted in verse 35, or Isaiah 40, which is quoted in verse 34. Here's more from Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 verse 12 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who? Who's done that? The Lord, only God, no one else. Later in that same chapter, Isaiah forty twenty six, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, the stars. He, he who brings out their host by number, calling them by all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Now, with great passages like these, and these are great passages. I mean, just soak in Isaiah 40. uh, With great passages like these, it makes sense that the physical creation, the created world, is usually our go-to standard to measure the immeasurable, uh, particularly as it pertains to God. I mean, who can hold the oceans in the hollow of his hand? Stars, he put them there, counting them all, calling them by name, keeping them there, except when he wants someone to go poof, just to make some nice you know, shapes and colors. Yeah, he does that too. Um, you know, so every time you see a new picture from the James Webb Space telescope, 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 you're seeing these in the news, it should be an opportunity for wonder. Not only at the universe, but once again at the, to, to stretch our understanding of God. So like, oh, okay, so there's billions and trillions more. Uh, okay, I mean, I'll, he did that. He did that. Startling beauty and power. He's where it all came from. But here, here Paul is not standing in wonder at oceans, mountains, galaxies. He's looking at God's surprising plan for our salvation. A history of redemption that feels like a roller coaster, twists and turns, ups and downs, breathtaking. Yes. Uh, though sometimes exhilarating, and other times terrifying. He didn't plan it like he, I want my life to be. If I'm engineering my life, I'm going for smooth, steady, comfortable, and predictable—not not roller coaster, right? Some of you heard me say this in the Sunday school class a couple of months ago when we did the follow-up to chapter nine. Uh, could God have made a world without the possibility of sin? Therefore, without the possibility of evil and all the the pain and suffering and brutality in our world? Could he have made a world like that? And if he could have, why didn't he? Okay, so we know he could have made a world like that because that is the world that we are promised. We are promised an eternity without sin, without suffering. That he could, he could, he could just, like, why don't we just start there? Why not just fast forward, let's start there. And so it troubles us, though, that he did make a world. He did make human beings, not only with the potential sin, to sin, but knowing that we would fall and all the kinds of atrocities that we commit against one another and all the kinds of horrifying accidents that happen. He, he made a world where that could happen. If, he was simply, if God was simply trying to avoid sin, pain, and death, it wouldn't be like this. And that's, that's a hard thing for us to swallow. But here's the thing. Here's where we've come to in all this. But what if God wanted to do more than show his wisdom, power, and beauty in creating and sustaining uh, things like flowers and stars and trees and rivers and waterfalls? What if he wanted to show his kindness to scoundrels? What if he wanted to show grace to the undeserving. What if he wanted to show mercy to those in desperate need? What kind of world, what's the kind of world where that could happen? Where God could show every facet of his character, kindness to the the rotten, grace to the undeserving, mercy to those in desperate need. He would have to give a long leash to sin, pain, and death so that we would understand what life apart from God is like. Just how horrifying that is. Life, How horrifying would it be, life apart from God? So we could see what life apart from God is like before he wipes out all sin and pain and death in complete triumph. And we who have been on this ride of sheer joy and utter terror have been safe the whole time. If you're thinking, hey, I didn't ask to get on this ride. (laughs) Well, you know, you didn't ask to be born, right? Maybe you've thought that. I didn't ask to be born. I didn't ask to be brought into this world. Here you are. Where, 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 where's the ride taking you? Where are you going to end up? Here you are. What if you surrendered your idea of making your life as smooth, steady, comfortable, and predictable as possible, and, hear me, without res- simply resigning to fate, whatever will be, will be. I guess I'm just along for the ride. Instead, offer your life, offer this life that God gave you back to him in worship knowing that everything in this world, in human history, in your life specifically, comes from him. He is the creator, the designer, the source. It's all through him. He is the sustainer. Colossians says, in him, Christ, all things hold together. He is your strength. He is your protection. He is your provider. He gives you what you need when you need it. It's all through him, and it's all for him. I know it's humbling to realize that, it's not all about you. It's jarring, of course, to come to that, to have somebody actually say that to you, because every advertisement that you see, every advertiser is telling you, no, it is all about you. And every activist is, uh, is saying, this is, about, this is about your rights, you, your rights. Every activist and advertiser is saying it's all about your rights, your comfort, you. But we exist like everything else in creation, from him, through him, and for him. So, to him be the glory. Let us, let us be happy. Can, can, can we do this? Can, let us be happy to be in the audience, not on the platform, not in the spotlight. That's his place. Let us be eager to be the ones bowing before his throne. It's a preacher's cliche, but it's true. History is his story. It's his story. It's a salvation story. It's a mercy story, a mystery of mercy, and we get to go along for the ride. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you'd graciously humble us with this good news. Lord, that there would be some here today that maybe for the first time needs we need to humble ourselves and say, I, I'm just a sinner in need of mercy. Lord, I know that we would rejoice together You've said all of heaven rejoices when a sinner repents, comes to find that mercy. Lord, may our understanding of the gospel and all that you've done through history in in doing so, in saving a people from Jew, Gentile, people from all nations, all walks of life, every tribe, tongue, people, language, nation, to be around your throne Pray that that would humble us and glorify you. Let us, may we, bring you glory. And we'll praise you for your mercy throughout eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.